maybe they got home at midnight. So they the date ends. That guy go fucks off somewhere. And um then they go to bed and then Tony on his first day of work <laughs> he he rolls up what 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 are we thinking one AM, two AM? He knocks on her door <laughs> across the hallway and is like, Hey Angel, I gotta apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I'm real sorry about <laughs> And then he just starts giving her fucking advice <laughs> on like <laughs> on how to maneuver for her promotion. Well, Jessica and Zach, from the day they were born, they started watching comedy because it was on. She was a golden girl, he had Seinfeld on the brain. They said a nine-year-old Frasier fan might just be insane. Harry and the Hendersons, Mindy and Mork. Now Jessica and Zach get together and talk. They'll never say the sitcom's glory days are gone. They'll still watch it because it was on. Because it was on. Because it was on Because it was on Because it was on Is it too early to set up a Patreon? And I'll call it Because it was on 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 And then it was just three. And I just couldn't believe that Eloise was even considering Jacob after the way he behaved at the marshmallow paddling challenge. What Jacob did to those marshmallows was unforgivable. Ricky, Serafina, Jacob, it all comes down to you three. I have one final rose left. It is always a difficult decision when an an influential CEO named by Forbes magazine as 2020's billionaire most likely to leave scathing remarks to every family member in her will, such as myself, must make a final decision. Which of my domestic servants will I stop paying minimum wage so that they can do their domestic labor for free? By marrying me really has been quite a journey we have all been on. In this time, I've had to say goodbye to Ellen, my personal masseuse, Ashton, my tantric yoga instructor, and Hector, my dog walker slash stockbroker slash barista. Now here I am, just a successful ball-busting businesswoman, standing in front of her employees asking them to take a chance on possibly being her romantic foil. How can I choose between my personal tarot card reader, my pickleball coach, and my body double? This is a choice no woman wants to make. But my smoking odd employees, we've made this choice easier than expected. Serafina, Jacob, you two are wonderful, dear, dear friends. I couldn't imagine life without either of you. But it is clear that the two of you have like an opposites attract side romance going on. I could see the electricity. 
Uh, I could see the electricity between the two of you on our last group mini golf outing when you two worked together to time your shot through the window. And Jacob, what you did to those marshmallows was inexcusable and you will apologize to the orphanage. But Serafina, the whole time he was looking at you, I could never stand in the way of the May-December romance of a Hungarian pickleball hopeful. I too am hopeful that someday they put pickleball in the Olympics and a man with at least three infinity symbol tattoos. You were clearly meant to be. That means Ricky, my tarot card reader who has been reading my major and minor arcanas like no one else could for 12 years. I'm beginning to think that we will or won't have something more. Will you maybe or maybe not accept this rose? Hello and welcome to Because It Was On. We're like that fancy film podcast, but for people who like to talk about that episode of Mama's Family, where after being unfairly beat out 50 years ago, Mama finally has a chance to sing in the annual Founders Day Festival when an audition is held to find a new singer of the town anthem, Raytown, oh Raytown. My name is Jessica, and I accidentally switched lives with my celebrity doppelganger, and now I'm due on set in 20 minutes, and she has a lot of things to answer for when she goes to her next PTA meeting. Glad I dodged that bullet. And I'm Zach, and my boss has developed an internet addiction, and Judith from accounting and Dave from human resources had to hold her down as I deleted each of her Neopets one by one. I love a good Neopets reference. Glad we were able to sneak that in there. Zach, what are we talking about today? You get the line this week. Well, if you haven't guessed it by now, we are talking about live-in domestic servants, specifically ones with a romantic arc. We're talking about the nanny. We're talking about who's the boss. Uh, Yes, we are. Two of the sitcomiest sitcoms that have ever sitcomed. I was thinking this as we were watching this. Let me tell you what. Who's the boss is a sitcom lover's sitcom. Mm-hmm. Yes. You we have the exact really got to love it. It is the, <laughs> the er sitcom. It is the essence of sitcom. Like if the writers of Who's the Boss were in charge of like gaslighting Truman from the Truman Show, like they were in charge of doing his life, Truman would have found out when he was like five years old. <laughs> it is the most contrived sitcom-y nonsense. <laughs> Absolutely. They've made a decision that they, they, they do not care about logic. They do not care about any sense of reality. You will sit down and you will suspend disbelief, baby. And you are going to believe that Mona's college professor just followed Tony to his house one day and walked right in to ask him on a date. That is sitcom, baby. You are going to believe that Tony and Angela met as children. She faked her name and she told him her name was Ingrid and they had a first kiss together. And then 20 years later, he shows up to be her housekeeper. You better believe it, baby. Honestly, if you want to suspend your disbelief for who's the boss, like 
the most believable scenario is what I just mentioned, that they are in a Truman Show situation. And there are like a million people on like head comms going like, okay, okay. Um, so Tony just arrived at the rec center. Now it's time to dispatch the police officer who is going to randomly recruit him to get drunk to demonstrate to teenagers what it's like, uh, how bad you are driving while drunk for like a public service after school thing so that he will get drunk um, and Angela and him can kiss. <laughs> it's just a million people off screen on head comps. Like, okay, d- dispatch the clown. <laughs> so for anyone um, who is maybe like under the age of 30 and has no idea what who's the boss is, except for maybe as a reference in community, Welcome to a critical analysis of who's the boss. I am Professor Peter Sheffield, and I'd like to begin with a simple question. Who was the boss? (laughs) Yes. Angela. (laughs) Oh, well, class dismissed. Why don't we give them a little bit of background on who's the boss? What's it about? (laughs) Well, Who's the Boss is a television show that ran from 1984 to 1992. It starred Tony Danza and Judith Light and Alyssa Milano, a little baby Alyssa Milano. Yes, her first real role. Yeah. Uh, You get Tony Danza doing a lot of Angela. Yeah. Um, Angela. I feel like this is going to be... This is going to be an impression-heavy episode. Yeah. Uh, if, if that's not what you are in for, if that's not what you came to be well for, maybe stop now because D'Angela, uh, it's going to be an impression-heavy episode. Get ready for it. Listen, Tony Danza's character is like your New Yorker's New Yorker. He's walking here. He's forgetting about it. He's just that. It's already been forgot. Yeah. Yeah. He is contractually obligated to mention that he's Italian every five minutes. And he has a daughter, the aforementioned baby Alyssa Milano. And he wants to get her out of the city because she had, because Alyssa Milano got in one little fight and his dad, her dad got scared. And, <laughs> and said, said we are moving in as a housekeeper in Connecticut. <laughs> so we both made the joke at the same time, but the point being, uh, she got in one little fight and her daddy got scared. And so now he's a housekeeper. He moved to Connecticut. I have no idea what he was doing for employment before. But presumably that job doesn't exist in Connecticut as well. And so he says, well, I guess I'll do literally anything. And applies to a job to be a housekeeper for one Miss Angela Bauer, played by Judith Light. And um, she is a corporate executive in the 1980s. She is climbing her way up the ladder and she is going to lead the, oh, they, it's like a regular joke. So now I'm pissed I can't remember it. But she is going to lead the like sixth largest advertising firm in the United States. Because she is a business woman. Um, hair for days. The hair volume. Hair for days. This show is single-handedly responsible for punching a hole in the ozone layer. 
uh, yeah. just to maintain there was Judith hairspray. Light's hair. Yeah, yeah. Judith Light is she's eighty percent hair volume and twenty percent cheekbones. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, they, they we, with a lot of these shows that like span sort of the same time from like, you know, the 80s to the early 90s, eventually the hair volume goes down because they get with the times. They didn't for a second blink. They were like, <laughs> that's the brand and we're sticking with it. She committed to a look. Mm-hmm. She committed to a look. Judith says, I know what the people want me to serve. And you know what? She's right. She's an absolute slay. She's the most interesting woman in the world to look at. Mm-hmm. I love Judith Light. I love Angela Bauer. Absolute slay. Um, but she is, she's a boss. She's a boss mama. Um, she, I, I always say all these ironic, like, women boss things. But at the point where I say every episode is no longer ironic or funny, yeah. it just becomes a thing I say. <laughs> and so I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, she is a, she is an executive. Uh, She's looking to hire a housekeeper and she has a mother who is very involved in her life named Mona. She's a horny old broad uh, who gets Tony the job because she thinks he's hot. Weird move by a mother to be like, how about this strange man whose only qualification is I find him to be hot? Isn't he perfect? No. He loves children, Angela, and children love him. I got that from the director of the Brooklyn Y. See, my instincts tell me this is the man for my grandson. And it doesn't hurt that he's a hunk, mother. I'm not looking for a hunk for a housekeeper. Why not? He'll do floors. He'll lift furniture. Can I come over when he lifts? How about I get him to move in with my daughter, live in her house when I know absolutely nothing about him? That's a weird mother move. IMO. It was phenomenal decision-making across the board by all parties. (laughs) (laughs) I've... This it, so Angela is well to do, but she sort of has like a standard suburban, like upper middle class suburban house. She does not live in a mansion, but she has this grown ass man and his daughter just roll up and live in their house, like use the same kitchen. It's not a mansion. This is not Downton Abbey. This right. Is- this is not an upstairs downstairs situation. It's a normal ass house. Look, property in Connecticut is pricey, especially property where she's presumably commuting into New York City every day. So living by the train, being able to commute into the city, that's pricey, pricey, pricey property. So she says she doesn't have a huge house. But yeah, again, this is astonishing decision making across the board. I'm going to move my ass all the way out of New York to Connecticut. Okay. Big decision. We're making a big swing. I'm just going to decide to be a fucking housekeeper when that was not my profession before. We're making a big swing. I'm going to hire this man to be my daughter's housekeeper, even though, again, he is a man living with your daughter in her home day in and day out. And you do not know this man. You have performed no background check, madam. He's just hot. (laughs) And then Judith Light, Angela, another decision says... Sure, you can live here. That's fine. It is a wild, wild swings across the board. 
Yeah, it's uh, but you know they made it work. It, this show made me realize how much better Downton Abbey would be if they just made the house real, real small, way smaller. You kept way the smaller. same dynamic, but you just like kept everyone. You know what? That is uh, that's that's why everybody likes that Bravo show Below Deck because they took the concept of Downton Abbey and just put it on a boat. <laughs> so there's so no this hide- is why there's no hiding. You are on a boat, Mama. You are gonna. You are gonna figure it out. Um, the best way to improve an upstairs downstairs drama: get rid of the stairs, baby. Get rid of the stairs. We <laughs> are full ranch style. It's at a ranch house. This is a ranch home. So yeah, that's that's the overall premise of who's the boss. Tony Danza. He's a he's an Italian guy coming from New York, and he is. Uh, he's working for Angela. It's a gender swap situation. She's going out there. She's being the the CEO. She's earning the money in a corporate environment, and he is taking care of the house and he is taking care of the children in 1980s Connecticut. Yeah, uh, and again, Who's a very important character is the unseen character or characters of like uh, like Sebastian from The Little Mermaid during Kiss the Girl, where he's like sneaking around, like manipulating <laughs> events to like make it romantic, or uh, like the muses from Hercules, like during uh, I Won't Say I'm in Love. That's constantly happening. The universe is conspiring to get these people together at all times. I'm, it, it is truly, it is truly the sitcom lovers sitcom. This yeah. is, it's, it's who's the boss. That's what it is. If you love the most contrived plots in existence, you're going to love who's the boss. This is why, like, there's an entire community episode built around who's the boss. And Abed refers to it more than once in the show. I believe this is why. It is the true North Star pinnacle of sitcoms make no fucking sense yeah it's a sitcom lover sitcom (laughs) now we have another entrant here that i think a lot more of our listeners will be familiar with and can i tell you a can i tell you a little story yeah there was once a woman um she was working in a bridal shop actually Mm -hmm. uh in flushing queens okay in fact when i tell you her boyfriend kicked her out and it was it was a crushing scene it was a crushing scene where was she to go what was she to do she was out on her fanny i don't know well you i'll tell you what she did over the bridge from brooklyn Mm -hmm. to the sheffield's door she was there to sell makeup that's actually a good market yeah mm -hmm. she would be really good at it but you know what father looked at her zachary he saw more oh he found her beguiling oh is this and you like know what those <laughs> the father found her beguiling I, i'm just gonna say it watch out cc and the kids are actually smiling this is getting it's sinister de vie. you know if i had to describe her in one way she's the Gone lady girl. in red she's the lady in red when everybody else is wearing tan let me introduce you she's the flashy girl from flushing She's the nanny named Fran. Oh, he hired her. <laughs> what I just realized as you were doing that, when you just sort of like spoke in word deadpan, the lyrics of that song, it sounds like a, like a fucking, like a Dateline episode. She, she just went. <laughs> over the bridge. Over the bridge. Flushing to the Sheffield's door. 
Um, she, she was, was there, there to sell, to sell makeup, makeup, but he saw more. The father saw more. Watch out, Cece. <laughs> <laughs> she was the lady in red. Everyone else is wearing tan. Uh, I'm assuming that's her funeral. That's what's like in my mind. <laughs> flashy girl from Flashy. <laughs> Oh, the flashing flusher slasher. <laughs> you got her too. <laughs> so we're talking, of course, about the nanny, uh, which may or may not, uh, the adaptation, the reboot may actually be a true crime documentary. So look out for that. But the one we're talking about is the one from the 90s. So it premiered in 1993 and ran to 1999. Starring one Miss Fran Drescher as Fran Fine, the charming um, but guileless nanny uh, from Queens, who is hired for an upper crust society man, a Broadway producer, sort of off the street to be a nanny for his children. Again, big swings in the decision making department. She by wrote all her parties involved. in lipstick. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Her, you, you know what? For both of our nannies here, our, our housekeeper and our nanny, uh, their resume was I'm hot. Yeah. And it worked. Yep. <laughs> it worked in both cases. Again, this is another uh, episode. We are solving the mystery of why boomers think the job market works the way it does, in part I mean, because of the, man, the nanny and uh, who's the boss. May I see your resume, please? Oh, yeah, sure. Hmm. Crayon? Lipstick. Of course. And what a lovely shade. <laughs> I hate her. Now, Brighton, let's not be hasty. Yeah, I haven't even sung Climb Every Mountain yet. Uh, Miss Fine, you seem to have listed the Queen Mother as a reference. Well, let me see that. Oh, no, that's not the queen mother. That's my mother from Queens. <laughs> Show a little leg, baby, and it's all yours. The world is your oyster. Uh, but yes, yeah, so so Fran Fine, uh, she shows up at the Sheffield's door, and Mr. Sheffield, played by Charles Shaughnessy, is a widower and very wealthy Broadway producer who has, because he is a widower, has three children, Maggie, Gracie and Brighton, who need to be tended after. And the the last nanny is quit because apparently in the first episode, the children are horrible, but they're actually like uh, never in the show all that much. And so Fran has to, to take over nanny duties because he needs someone that night because he's having a party and the children can't be running amok. And the agency simply won't send over another nanny. And so Fran is his only option. And slowly but surely, she wins over the hearts of, of everyone around her, except for Cece Babcock, who is the sort of business partner of Mac. She's an upper crust society lady, also an executive. She's a Broadway producer in her own right. Um, she's the naysayer, but we have Niles, the butler, who, who also is charmed by Fran and they become fast friends, um, and that pretty much rounds out our core cast outside of Fran's family, which shows up a lot. And they're sure a hoot. I think where you're going with this is 
you wish they would have followed through and made Niles gay. And I do want to talk about that actually as part of our larger discussion yep. on the show. It's just they were because cowards. Because they were cowards. And some of the most weird and awkward moments in all of the nanny is when they have Niles just like sexualize Fran. Like be horny for Fran every once in a while. When I meet Mr. Sheffield's mother, do I got a curtsy? Because if I do, this skirt turns into a tube top. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're exaggerating, but go ahead, try it. As if we buy that, Niles. Yeah, yeah, very much was getting like high school flashbacks. <laughs> yeah, sure, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you would just ravish Fran. <laughs> I do all sorts of sex things with her. Yeah, yeah, we we buy that you absolutely want to have sex with Cece. I can't but wait actually, to grab her bosom. Maybe they're perfect for each yeah. other, Cece and Niles. Listen, when you're that age and you're still deciding to stay in the closet, you've made a decision. So um, this is true. Yeah, so I think we'll talk about. It. I think there's actually a lot to talk about if you're comparing Niles to Fran, in terms of like class and gender positioning. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's it's a weird one. Anything else to say on the plot of the nanny? Nope, that's the general plot. The nanny's, uh, Fran's like, family is fucking amazing. I love Yetta. I love her mom. The actresses who play, who round out Fran's family, are just absolutely phenomenal. So Renee Taylor plays Sylvia, and Anne Morgan Gilbert plays Yetta. These are powerhouse actresses. Anytime they're on screen, it is just lighting up the screen. More importantly, why doesn't anyone ever eat these fruits? Because they're wax. <laughs> Even the grapes? <laughs> what were you thinking of? The man is a baby. He's 60 years old. 60? Yeah, he's not even back in diapers yet. <laughs> You should be ashamed of yourself. Two of him together would be closer to your age. Not interested. With two men, there's always jealousy, performance anxiety. <laughs> right. So now you know a little something about Nana. Feed him enough. Ladies, what brings you to therapy? I came because my mother has an obsession with me getting married. I came because my daughter has a delusion that I have an obsession. I came because they brought me, and I don't know how to get home from here. They're absolutely hilarious. I would say you remember Fran's mother and Yetta way more than you remember the kids from the nanny. Yeah, which is hilarious because it was like Fran's job. <laughs> but she was just, her family was constantly rolling up on her workplace. And yeah. Just like Fran was just Fran hanging out had, with them. She had full privileges around like who was allowed in that house at any point in time. People yeah. could roll up through there. It's wild considering that is the place where his children are. Yeah, <laughs> just like um, her sister's ex-husband just rolls up at some point so that her sister and him can like work the shit out in his kitchen. And then like, <laughs> he, and he like sees it, but I guess he, 
usually what Fran needs. Fran needs her her space. Yeah. As long as it's in the kitchen. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the general plot of Nanny. Um, it's a really. I actually have a lot of fond memories of watching the Nanny growing up. What about you? Is this a show that you uh, you you dabbled in? Oh, absolutely. I loved The Nanny. Um, when I was a kid, I would spend summers at my dad's house and he would like have to go to work during the day. And uh, so I would just be watching daytime television. Like I was literally just stuck in his bachelor's apartment, um, just like drinking Dr. Pepper out of a wine glass and <laughs> <laughs> watching TV. And uh, my grandma uh, came to visit once just so I'd have something to do, I guess. But we were just sitting there and I was drinking Dr. Pepper out of wine glass with my grandma. And she's very much one of those women of an older generation that just politely never has an opinion. Just like, you watch whatever you want to watch. And so I was like, all right, <laughs> fucking watching in daytime, lifetime. And uh, so after like two hours of the Golden Girls and then it switched to uh, like the nanny rerun block and she just like turned to me and she says do you watch this often? <laughs> and then I looked at it and I, I, I could hear a tone but I was too young to understand but I said yeah I love the nanny and then she <laughs> and then she stared so, at me <laughs> I didn't know we were getting your coming out story exactly <laughs> Yeah, because she just stared at me for a second. I didn't understand the look that she gave me at that time. But I now, as an adult looking back, I recognize that look as understanding. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that was when I came out to my grandma without me knowing it. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of, do we need to take a little break? I do see that your wine glass of Dr. Pepper is getting a little low. Do you need a top off? Oh, a little top off? Uh, no, 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 I'm good. I, I got to refill <laughs> I got it from the box. <laughs> I also consumed the nanny a lot, also on Lifetime reruns. Yes, thank you, Lifetime. It's also where I consume most of my Will and Grace reruns. Lifetime, thank you. Uh, but yeah, I remember watching it as a kid and really loving it. Um, the fashion in the nanny, I can't believe we've gone this long without mm. mentioning the main character of the nanny, which is the fashion the fashion absolutely she's an icon miss fran drescher um the 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 costumes on this show are unreal they're they're the other main character she looks great she it's just like clashing patterns it is a lisa frank backpack if it was a person absolutely so the costumes are beyond. They're beyond. She looks so good. But yeah, so Zach, what do we want to talk about when we're talking about the nanny and who's the boss? So um, I think we can talk first about, I think probably an obvious direction to go in, is class. These are two shows where, of course, an employer and an employee are living under the same roof. And the way that they like show these characters are from different classes to like highlight the fish out of water, odd couple romance um, is interesting how they choose to communicate where these people are from. In both cases for Who's the Boss and the Nanny, they choose to go with these sort of ethnic New York uh, 
angle, which is v- classic from this era. Like if you wanted a working class white person, then you almost went with like a New York region accent of some kind, whether you're doing like um, sort of Fran's um, sort of like Jewish Queens voice. Hi, I'm Fran Fine. Well, do come in. Oh boy, do you have gorgeous tchotchkes. Uh, thank, <laughs> thank your pardon. Uh, oh, you know, your bric-a-brac, dust collectors? Ah, the Rodin, yes. Well, he was, uh, he was well known for his bronze tchotchkes. <laughs> or, um, what is Tony? He's from Brooklyn? He's, he's got that Yeah, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. He's a Brooklyn Italian yeah, for yeah, yeah. sure. They do it in Facts of Life. It, it'd be exhausting to list all of them. Like, in that time, that's how you made a white person working class. Yes, yes. <laughs> Unless they were from the South. Definitely. The South. Yeah. Absolutely. So in terms of class coding, which I think is the a, a really good place to start, because these shows, when we're when we're thinking about them sort of as a step back or at like a macro level, really what we're talking about, what we're boiling it down to is these are shows where an employer falls in love or at least has some sort of romantic entanglement with an employee. And uh, what we want to look at is everything that sort of comes with that. And with both the nanny and who's the boss, you get a huge helping of classism, or at least class as something that is a part of the relationship between these two people. And it's really interesting to see how these shows talk about it and how they treat it and the role of class within the relationship between these two characters. And I think what you hit on is actually the biggest way that they identify the two characters as, as uh, a different class or as working class is they really lean into the ethnic identity of both Fran and Tony and in Who's the Boss. Fran specifically is coded as lower class because of the type of sort of Jewish persona that she is, um, or personality that she's putting forward, the way she talks, her use, her use of a lot of sort of uh, Yiddish phrases and communication and generally the way that her family is displayed almost like arguably in a very stereotypical fashion in terms of being loud, busybody, involved in uh, every aspect of her life, a huge pressure on her to like marry, uh, marry up and all those sorts of things I think are are wrapped up in sort of that Fran's class identity. Um, And so just like in and of itself, it's very interesting that in both of our shows, our wealthy characters are coded as wealthy by being part of sort of like a white waspy culture. And our ethnic characters are coded as being lower class because they are part of this ethnic culture. Yeah, uh, I mean, the CC is sort of like the, the avatar of wasp culture. She is yes. um, the bloodless wasp, um, you know, just hag is well what the jokes are about her all the time that she's extremely revolting and that she's like a monster please i'm begging you it'll only take a couple of minutes you don't even have to like it there's a speech she knows by heart (laughs) don't back down maxwell we don't need some old crone running around the house because we are crone heavy sir (laughs) although with two we'd have a set Oh my God, Nanny Fine, don't tell me you're wearing that cheap, tacky dress to meet Richard Porter's oldest friend. I would be 
got dead in that dress. You'd have to be dead six months to fit into it. Classic, classic sitcom style. She's beautiful. But all of Correct. the jokes and the dialogue <laughs> convey yes. that she's hideous and uh, revolting. But, yes. Yeah. Cece's such an interesting character. Yeah. For most of American history, like the class divide, like wasps uh, were sort of like, oh, we came off of the Mayflower, daughters of the American Revolution. And uh, we go to tea parties and we have debutante balls and that sort of thing. Um, and that was sort of your upper crust. And uh, all the other flavors of white people were your Ellis Island whites that came during that era. So uh, your New York immigrants, your Italian immigrants. And so like during the 20th century for uh, TV, they really leaned on that. You don't really see this distinction that much more in TV or in culture in general. Um, it's, uh, but it was a very distinct way that they used to code uh, class mm -hmm. difference on television. Yes. I'm interested too in like what what other ways do we see Fran specifically? Because I, I'll put my cards on the table. I think class is a bigger part of the conversation when it comes to the nanny. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in Who's the Boss. I think it does. I think Who's but the I Boss do think on some level conspired to paint over class. I think so. I think, and you know, I think they did it by gender swapping them because I think it shifts the power dynamic a little bit in a way that like, I think um, it's it's almost a way of like trying to like bring them onto equal playing fields a little bit. Hence the name, right? yeah. Like, yes, exactly. Like, who's the boss? Why would it be a question yeah. who's the boss unless the genders were swapped? Precisely, yeah. yes. Because Tony, Tony Danza's character is this working class person and uh, Angela is a wealthier person. And so um, if you're looking at it from a pure class perspective, right? Angela has this upper hand over Tony, but then if you're looking at it through this gendered lens, especially in the 1980s, Tony's going to have power in the situation over Angela. And so then we sort of level the playing field, so to speak, at least uh, from, from sort of this, the, the perspective of the television show by, by having that balance there. And so class isn't quite called attention to all that much. Um, in fact, everybody in Angela's life is like really down with her being with Tony because he is hot. Yeah. And so they are all for it. <laughs> but class is like this huge thing in the nanny because we don't have that sort of redistribution of power from like a gendered perspective. Like Mr. Sheffield, Maxwell Sheffield is the rich person and he's the man. Fran is the working class person and she's the woman. And so we don't have that as much. And so class becomes this like outsized conversation within the show. Yeah. It is, I would say the number one thing sort of keeping the Maxwell and Fran apart is this class divide. So I'm curious how else they, te they tell us as an audience that Fran is, she doesn't belong in Mr. Sheffield's world. Yeah. Um, so I think, just the fashion that we were talking about before uh, is a huge yes. part of it. She's the lady in red and everybody else is wearing tan. I mean, that's just a reference to her having this very like loud, mm -hmm. lower class, flashy style that is totally antithetical to like wasp culture of, you know, this, mm -hmm. it's a very cartoony representation of, um, 
like if we were to plot like different sitcoms there's definitely like a spectrum of how far onto like uh the cartoon world you are like the it crowd is like almost fully cartoony and like it's rules of how like reality works and um and the nanny is sort of like pretty far along and like has a foot in the cartoon world Um, right like the it's so heightened like they have the very very rich uh british guy with a british butler they have the mansion but totally the fashion is a way that they code uh fran as Mm -hmm. being uh lower class yeah yes yeah she 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 wears loud outfits yes but i think the fashion works in two other ways to help code her as a different class than everyone else's one is um, it's very revealing and very sexualized the way that she dresses. It's referred to often in different episodes how Fran will come sit on Mr. Sheffield's desk in one of her little outfits. Um, there's an episode where Maxwell's mother comes to visit. She sees Fran in a flower shop before Fran knows who she is. And they're fighting over who gets the last batch of tulips. And Maxwell's mother is, says something along the lines of, can I buy you plastic flowers to match the plastic outfit that you're wearing. Uh, sorry, that woman has the last of the tulips. Who? That girl. I have my eye on those. <laughs> well, I had my eye on Antonio Banderas, but I ain't taking him home either. <laughs> uh, darling, uh, what if I bought you some plastic flowers to go with that? petroleum product you're wearing. Wow, as if the Brits are so stylish. Newsflash, the royal wedding pictures look like mama's family. Cece and Fran, just the way that they are foils to one another is one of the main ways that they like highlight the difference. But Cece is also iconic in her own right. Her outfit, like she has a very specific uh, color palette that they want to stick with for Cece, but it's fucking flawless. Cece is killing it every single time as well. Cece's a sleigh. Yeah. Cece's absolutely a sleigh. Um, Cece was always my favorite character growing up. Um, It's interesting, growing up, I didn't really pick up on all the class stuff quite as much. I just read Cece as like a boss bitch. Like she was the bitch. And I'm always going to identify with the bitch. And what I think is a really interesting way of like, okay, here's how we're coding Fran or flat out telling you that she's from a lower class and also sort of um, identifying like why that makes her better than or more interesting than at least. Uh, more interesting than CC is uh, the second episode of the series where Fran has to plan um, like a ladies' cotillion for Maggie, and so it is up to Fran to navigate this world of high society for the first time with someone of the the tutelage of CC. I think this is the episode where we most see like where like how Fran doesn't fit in. Yeah. Um, and so she doesn't really understand as she's planning this lady's cotillion, she really doesn't understand all of the machinations of what polite, wealthy society expects from these types of events. So she's planning something a lot more fun with music and dancing and a different kind of food and catering. And Cece has to step in to be like, you are going to embarrass the Sheffield name in New York. Maxell will never produce a play again in the city. Fran, if you were to throw this cotillion for the ladies of New York. 
And Cece has to step in to kind of coach her and guide her on how to do this more appropriately. But what I think is interesting, right, which it comes back to this idea of like sort of almost compared Fran and Cece, which I think, again, is, is a tension of the show. Everyone at the party ends up finding the party very boring. Yeah, you didn't have to change. Aren't you always telling me to be myself? Sure, when you're you, perfection, you could be yourself. But when you're me, a uh, diamond in the rough. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'd kill to be like you. Really? I'd kill to be like you. So what do you say we go through a party that'll kill Cece? Oh, now you're thinking like a Deb. Kiss, kiss. Hog, hog. <laughs> Come on, take my hair out. These are just delicious. You like, huh? Marshmallow Rice Krispie Treats, always a big hit. Mm, you must give me the recipe for Cook. Honey, buy the cereal. It's right on the side panel. What, you gonna make me write it down? <laughs> as plans sort of are taken over by Cece. And Maggie comes to Fran and ends up begging her to like, please be yourself. Please throw the party that we wanted to throw. And Fran does it. And it's instantly a better and more fun party. She's charming everyone, everybody really likes her. And so obviously it shows that like Fran is more fun and she is better than Cece in this regard to be around. And I think it's an interesting theme to pick up on that carries throughout the season or throughout the series that like Fran is more fun and she is more entertaining and she is more beautiful and she is more charming. And yet those things I think are things that Mr. Sheffield Maxwell is attracted to in Fran, but also things he recognizes as things that like he cannot have in his life because ultimately what Fran is at that party is she is a sideshow. She's entertaining. But at the end of the day, I'm still a minimum wage fucking nanny who's here to entertain you and make you laugh. And so Maxwell is attracted to that and he likes that and he wants to be entertained by her. He finds her alluring, he finds her attracting, but he recognizes she's a sideshow in the world of class of, of New York. Yeah, I'm glad that you picked up on like the the predatory sort of undertone of this. Um, I think that there is a long, long, long literary tradition of this trope of like the bloodless, stifling culture of the wealthy and the elite. And then like telling these stories about how new life and um, fun is yeah. pumped in. And this working class person just brings all the fun and the energy and like renewed life to um, like a wealthy person, often a romance. Right. We're talking Titanic. Um, like Great the, expectations. Yeah. The Notebook, <laughs> yeah. Overboard, uh, Pretty Woman, Tuck Everlasting. During, I just jotted down some random examples that I could think of. But yeah. tons and tons. It's a very common trope. Of, yeah. It tends to be a romantic side quest, yeah. right? For our wealthy person who gets to essentially cosplay in this world for a little bit while giving up really nothing mm -hmm. of their own, uh, of their own privilege. And I think that's what we do here. And I think partially this is why, like, I somewhat respect Cece as a character because I think Cece is fucking aware of who she is and what is expected of her and her role. 
Yeah. I mean, CC is also in that uh, trope. Like, if you want to, like, boil down this to the, like, its archetypes, it's like the life-giving working-class person matched with the bored, bloodless elite that they're, like, renewing. But also an archetype in that is CC, who is, like, the gatekeeper, often played by, like, the mother character or you know the parental figure is like that's against the rules and uh, that's that's CC in this like ancient play that is that we've done for a very long time (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Collins is such a sensible respectable young man and he's taken quite a fancy to Lizzie and I don't think he could find a better wife he favoured Jane at first but Bingley was there before him now there And of course, that will throw the girls into the path of other rich men. Sylvia, I know, I've heard, but it's going to be all right. Come on. It's times like this you look up to God and ask, why? Why? Well, now we can't ask why, Sylvia. It's nature. It's it's random. No! Why don't you marry my daughter? Yeah, the nanny is the... The Greek tragedy. Yeah. That is the nanny. (laughs) Why do you think that this story keeps getting told? What power do you think there is in it? I think... Here's what I think. The reason that this trope gets repeated over and over and over again is because the vast majority of people who are going to consume media are not part of the wealthy elite, right? And so I think the allure of the story is we have something that they could never have. We have something as non-elite, non-wealthy people that the wealthy and the elite could never have. That money can't buy you. There's something money can't buy you, right? We have heart, we have fun, we have energy. We have all of those things that no amount of money in the world could buy you. And so I think it is a, a comforting narrative to the vast majority of media consumers who are not wealthy, who are not the elite, who are not the boring sort of bloodsuckers that are being portrayed in, in the story. Absolutely. It's just your compensation prize. Your compensation prize that was given to you by wealthy people, people that run television networks and uh, publishing houses. And so th- I think that there's a reason that this trope gets repeated and this promoted. Exactly. It, it's a you may not get prize. to marry him, but at least you have gumption. Yeah, we have more fun here. And that that's what exactly. we, that's what we and have. Aren't you? Isn't that really what matters? Yeah. Isn't that really what matters? And again, it's just uh, fictional. I don't know if you've read the news lately about what like our society's elites are up to, but on Epstein Island, apparently, I don't think they were having like fucking cotillion balls and like repressed uh, tea parties. <laughs> Zooming right along. That's that. <laughs> so but yeah, I, I wanted to compare Niles and Fran because I think they're very, very interesting because even though they are both considered servants, they are both the domestic class here. Niles and Fran um, are are compared to each. If you look at them, let me rephrase. If you look at Niles and Fran in comparison to each other, um, Niles is coded as being a much higher class, even though they ostensibly both get paid about minimum wage. That they make jokes about it all the time. Well, what do you need another credit card for, anyway? 
Broadway. Oh, I want to get credit so I can buy some new outfits to impress Dr. Joyce Brothers. I mean, look at me, Val. I look like a cheap tart, and not in the good way. <laughs> yeah, but I think under salary, you made a mistake. Well, that's because last time I put my real salary on an application, they sent me food stamps and a box of government cheese. <laughs> you know, I remember that. It had a surprisingly tangy aftertaste. Um, but Niles, like there's an, an entire episode where Fran becomes very self-conscious because many people are calling to try to poach Niles, but nobody's calling for her. And Mr. Sheffield specifically says something along the lines of, with Niles' manners and his good breeding, he's often asked after but nobody ever asks after you, Fran. And so I just, I just think it's so interesting that they're both in the same position financially, but we see Niles coded as a completely different class in a lot of ways. So I've never seen the movie Remains of the Day, but I read the book. The author is one of my favorite authors. And so I don't know if they get into this in the movie, um, but in the book, which if you're not aware, Remains of the Day is about this extremely repressed um, butler who was like the butler's butler of butlers. Um, and he's so dedicated to his job and he takes an immense amount of pride in his job because he dedicates to his life to one of the great lords of the empire or whatever. And right. um, so even though he is a servant in the house, he takes a great deal of pride in that. He makes a lot of sacrifices in order to fulfill this role. And he doesn't like even permit himself to like pursue a romance because he's so dedicated to his profession and he couldn't even dream of doing something profession. And the spoiler alert, the book sort of concludes pretty emphatically that this man wasted his life. And one of the ways that they show that he wasted his life is that his belief that he is like a step above and that he is not actually working class because he wears this suit and he lives mm -hmm. in this mansion and, you know, he gets to be in the same space. These elites it, it is an illusion and it was fantasy. is a fantasy that is cruelly smashed in front of him when there's this like heartbreaking scene where uh, the Lord like calls him in while drunk with all of his like drinking buddies. And they start asking this very prim and proper butler, all of these like complex uh, questions about uh, affairs of state and like, oh, what is this going to do to the national price index and all that in mm -hmm. order to confound him and because he is at the end of the day a working class person that did not receive an education where he can answer the kind of questions that they're doing just to like mock him mr spencer would like a word with you sir my good man i have a question for you yes sir do you suppose the debt situation regarding america is a significant factor in the present low levels of trade or do you suppose this is a red herring and that the abandonment of the gold standard is at the root of the problem? I'm sorry, sir, but I'm unable to be of assistance in this matter. Oh, dear, what a pity. Well, perhaps you can help us on another matter. Oh, no. Do you think that the currency problem in Europe would be alleviated by an arms agreement between the French and the Bolsheviks? I'm sorry, sir, but I'm unable to be of assistance in this matter. Very well, Stevenson. That'd be all. Uh, one moment, Darlington. I have another question to put to our good man here. Oh, no. 
My good fellow, do you share our opinion that Monsieur de Ladier's recent speech on the situation in North Africa was simply a ruse to scupper the nationalist fringe of his own domestic party? I'm sorry, sir. I'm unable to be of assistance in any of these matters. You see, gentlemen, our good man here is unable to assist us in these matters. And yet, we still go along with the notion that this nation's decisions be left in the hands of our good man here and a few millions like him. You may as well ask a committee of the Mother's Union to organize a war campaign. Thank you, Stevens. So... Niles is sort of in the same boat of he did have probably there are like schools that you go to to receive the training to do a butler. And so you are essentially specialized labor, but you are not. He is still working class. He is just a his specific skill set is to fit in to elite environments. Right. He's higher value working class in the system that at least the world of the nanny has set up because he is white, because he is British, because he is specialized, he has this training. Um, he's able to present himself in an acceptable way. Like Mr. Sheffield says, he has the manners and the breeding of a higher class of servant. But at the end of the day, he's still a servant and Mr. Sheffield ignores him and overlooks him in the exact same way that he does Fran. There's an example of this when um, Mr. Sheffield is looking for casting for his next big part. Niles would be perfect for it. Niles has the voice of an angel, but Mr. Sheffield can't see him as anything but a butler. He can't see him as anything but a servant. Anything else we'd like to touch on before we, I, I really like to dig in the, the meaty, meaty gender pie that, that these shows are serving us, but I'd love if you have anything else, let's hit it. Gender is a big, 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 meaty, meaty, meaty thing in Who's the Boss. But I think the first two episodes of Who's the Boss really say everything there is to say about how gender and sort of the gender swap situation impacts the show. The first episode is all about Angela wanting to get a promotion at work. Why is this the first episode of the show? It's a banana. So the first episode of the show is Angela wants to get a promotion at work. And so she's seeing the current CEO, hoping that he will promote her or put in a good word with her about her to the board so that she can become CEO. And so he invites her away for the weekend. Um, And Angela must decide if she goes away for the weekend with him. To, in order to like give herself a leg up to get the position. Grant's being moved up to chairman of the board. He's going to recommend a new president this week. Uh, and I've got a good shot at it. Or at least I did. Hey, no problem. You could be president someplace else. Just like that, huh? Yeah, what the heck? Go down to the president's hiring hall and hang around until something breaks. <laughs> You're a smart lady. You could do it. You don't need that stiff. Tony. You know how long I've worked for this? Uh, ever since my husband left me, and well, anyhow, it's it's just taken me a long time to get this far, and I, I'd really love to go all the way. Yeah, I know. I just like to... nothing was going to happen here. Well, why should it when the man has a perfectly good house upstate? Aha! Uh-huh. So that's where you're going with him this weekend, Tony. I'm going to say this very slowly. My weekend has nothing to do with my promotion. 
You'll never know unless you don't go. Who are you anyway? Jiminy Cricket? I'm just trying to tell you, Angela, you can do this on your own. It's like Sinatra said. Sinatra? Through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and I spit it out. <laughs> I faced them all and I stood tall and I did it my way. We're talking about my life and you're giving me philosophy from the Sands Hotel? <laughs> and it's that, that is the central tension of the episode. Tony doesn't want her to. Tony feels like it's beneath her. And Angela is making this decision of like whether she does that um and gets that leg up or whether she chooses not to this is a bonkers ass thing to have as your first episode of the show in my opinion who's the boss doesn't waste any time <laughs> they're showing angela naked episode two it's just such a strange thing to be like do you think that idea behind it was like to specifically show like the goodness of tony the fact that he recognizes that like this is sexual like this is sexual harassment and therefore like Angela like he like is it meant to show him as like a protector of Angela's chastity or, I mean I think that there's a what lot is of, going on with this episode I, there's a lot of like Tony is different energy like in throughout the show that to Tony's not like other guys but he is like other guys you guys could choose to be like Tony I think is sort of what they want to offer but there's a lot of like Tony Tony's not like you know he's different yeah and um, yeah and that could be what they're going for there yeah it's just it, it's an odd choice that this man who knows nothing of the world in which Angela operates knows nothing of the, probably the humiliation, the misogyny, the shitty, shitty things that she's had to put up with to get where she is in her career, knows nothing of that, can waltz into the situation and tell her what the best thing to do here is because he has some grand insight on how she chooses to exercise her sexuality to get ahead in the workplace is wild to me. You're missing like the keyest fucking detail of this. So the timeline is that uh, Angela gets home from a date late at night and she's getting flirtatious in the kitchen with the executive guy and things are getting randy and rough. And then Tony believes that he is like a burglar or something like there's a guy in the house so he like whips out a bat and he like he ruins the date angela is very upset at this and like humiliated and embarrassed and then they both go to bed in a huff it is extremely late at night uh this is like his first day reluctantly <laughs> being hired as a maid she barely fucking He's on probation. She said that you're there on a probation basis and you break up her date with a baseball bat. And I'm like, hey, Gabagooey, get out of here. And The date with her boss. With her boss. That she's trying to use to leverage into a CEO position. Yeah, so we're talking like they got home. What It seemed like it was a good date. Maybe they got home at midnight. So they the date ends. That guy go fucks off somewhere. And... Um, then they go to bed and then tony on his first day of work <laughs> he he rolls up what 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 are we thinking 1 a.m 2 a.m he knocks on the, her door <laughs> across the hallway and is like hey angel i gotta apologize <laughs> <laughs> i'm real sorry about <laughs> 
And then he just starts giving her fucking advice. <laughs> On like and <laughs> how to maneuver for her promotion. <laughs> like he in any any universe that is out on his ass. And who's the boss? She takes that advice. And guess who becomes CEO? Angela. Angela. Because she didn't she did not allow vaginal access. Mm. She you Thank you, Tony. Yourself, Angela. <laughs> Thank you, Tony, for the shirtless advice. Yeah. Really appreciate it. <laughs> It's a wild episode, but it is nowhere near comparison to the second episode of Who's the Boss, which is perhaps one of the most wild episodes I've ever seen on television. I and I, I did too. I had to. I had to watch it twice. I, uh, ah, I could watch it a thousand times. It's, it is hands down one of the most insane episodes of television has ever happened it's been referenced countless times this is the episode where tony sees angela i'm gonna run through the plot with you and so is zach and then i have analysis i have analysis here's what happens in this plot i'm so like worked up about how to talk about this so one of the very opening scenes this is tony he's just started this job Angela is like, Tony, I need to see you in my bedroom. He's very uncomfortable about entering her bedroom. She says, Tony, you have to clean in my bedroom. He doesn't love this. Tony, you have to clean my personal bathroom. He doesn't love this. Tony, you have to clean my bra, my underwear, and my uh, my pantyhose. I you have to clean these things. I know this isn't how sitcom timelines work, but I love to believe this was the second day of work. <laughs> love that idea love that idea um but she says you have to clean these things tony he's very visibly uncomfortable throughout the course of the scene he doesn't want to have to do these things but he does clock angel's got a bathtub and it's a nice bathtub and oh by the way tony loves a good bubble bath every once in a while huh tony likes a bath okay so he's got to clean her, her room. He's got to clean her bathroom. He's got to wash her skivvies. All of this is established. And then Angela's a bastard of a son comes to her and it says, CEO mommy, I have parents night tonight. You need to be there at school. And Angela says, baby, it's a board meeting for the company of which I am president. I am not going to be able to be there. And then this child goes guess you don't love me <laughs> guess you don't love me and so this woman re she cancels a board meeting for the company at which she just just became president she cancels a motherfucking board meeting all the motherfucking while tony um, answers the door. He's cleaning one day. He answers the door. All of a the sudden, there's a woman standing at the door. She says, I need to call AAA. Can I use your phone? Sure thing. Come in. She starts hitting on him. She says, oh, you're Italian. Oh, you're sexy. Boop, 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 boop. I love you. Let's go on a date. And Tony says, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and so they decide that they're going to go on a date. Oh, my God. At the same time, Mona, who, if you'll remember, is Angela's mother, she is pulling a Pierce Hawthorne community situation and she is going back to community college studying psychology. She clocks the bitch. She says, oh, my God, professor, 
How did you end up at my house? Turns out she's been stalking Tony. The most sitcom-y sitcom. <laughs> this is the most sitcom-y sitcom of all motherfucking time. So it turns out her psychology professor has been stalking Tony because she wants to go on a date with him. All right, put pins in all of this shit, people. Put pins in all of this shit. And so um, Angela cancels her board meeting. She comes back home. She says to her son, baby, guess who loves you? Mommy loves you. She canceled her board meeting. And then this child goes, parents' night is next weekend. What are you, what are you doing here? Thanks for coming home. But parents' night is next week. You don't need to be here right now. Here I am, Jonathan. Hi, Mom. Aren't you surprised to see me? No, you live here. <laughs> Sweetheart, I canceled the board meeting and I canceled all my dinner plans just so that you and I could go to the parents' night together. Wasn't that nice of me? I guess so, but I made a mistake. Parents' night is next week. <laughs> Jonathan, I'm going to sell you to the gypsies. Wow. And Angela, to her credit, says, I'm not going to yell. I'm just going to go take a bath. Whereas I think that I would have, like, clenched my jaw so hard that all of my molars would have shattered. He was like, I forgot. Oopsie doopsie. Uh, just playing like a proto Game Boy on the couch. And so she tells him. She says to this boy, tell Tony I'm home for dinner. And guess what? He was too engrossed with his 1980 fucking three Game Boy, whatever, that he forgets. And so Angel says, you know what I'm going to do to relax? I'm going to take a nice hot bath. Just going to go relax in the bathtub. <laughs> All the while, Tony and Mona are coaching Tony for his date because Mona wants Tony to have a good date so that she gets an A on her psychology midterm, the most sitcom-y sitcom to ever exist. You gotta fuck so my professor so that I get an A <laughs> because you work for my daughter, so if you fuck my professor, then my professor's gonna give me an A. <laughs> Bingo. Bingo, you're following along. Let's keep going. And so she, Tony says, you know what, I could use a shower. Actually, you know what, I could use a bath. And Mona says, why don't you use Angel's bath? She's got a board meeting. She's not going to be here. Just use Angela's bath. And Tony says, hey, let's do it. And so Tony goes to get into the bathtub. And surprise, surprise, Angela's in the bathtub. And so right as Tony's opening the door, there's Angela. He opens the door. She's naked. She just got out of the bathtub. Ah! So Tony sees Angela naked. Tony sees Angela naked. Tony sees Angela naked. Let's talk about this very important five seconds in television history. This is the peep show seen around the world. Yeah, this was referenced in Family Guy. This was referenced in Community. Uh, probably more. Tony sees Angela naked. Tony sees Angela naked. I, the first time I watched it, I, I'm often like doing something else when uh, watching these shows. And so I was like drawing. And so I didn't actually catch this the first time. But on second rewatch, I saw the way they chose to do this and i did Genius. not realize they do like they do like a powerpoint slide presentation of Genius. like her body <laughs> it is insane the way that they, this is why i think it is stuck in the pop culture lexicon the way that it has the specific shots of how angela is shot 
coming out of the bathtub are fucking genius. If I went to film school, I would write a paper on this for like cinematography. Easily. Um, Easily. Abed did. Abed did. mm -hmm. You know Abed did. This is the most genius cinematography. And here's why, my friends, my folks, my people, you are watching network television in the 1980s. You have to be very careful on what you are actually showing on television. So here is what they do to make this 10 times sexier than anything you were ever going to see. Angela is coming out of the bath and Zach is right. They shoot her from head down, but here's what they do. They give, they show you she is naked and give the illusion of being naked by showing you nude body parts that are not in and of themselves salacious, but are body parts that you rarely see nude. And you rarely see nude on like a woman like Angela, right? So they're showing you a cut of like the waist and like her belly button, but only like kind of half of it. They're showing you like mid thigh to mid calf. They're showing you like the like the underside of her arm. But like um, you're, you're, it's so close and like it's shot. Like these so are these close. are stills, and it's yes. like uh, you you see like the Vaseline grease to like because under the studio mm-hmm. lights they need her to she look is wet. Tanned. You see her. She is wet. That she's wet. You see the goose pimples. You see the flesh. It's so close. It's so visceral. And it's just rapid succession the shots. Like so close. It is boom, boom, boom. And again, they're body parts that like in and of themselves not inherently sexual you can show them on television but they are body parts (laughs) their body parts rarely seen naked and so who didn't pop a boner like it is this had to have been the sexual awakening of every dork Yep, that was in the 1980s. That that was the day that Gen X collectively popped a boner. Or yeah, or, or, or... time stood still yeah. at this moment, and even still watching it, like it is a masterclass of how this is shot. Please go back and watch Who's the Boss episode one or season one episode two. It is insane how they do this, and so Tony sees Angela naked, and that specific series of shots has stuck in pop culture memory forever i think this is the the like this 10 seconds of television is what has cemented the show in pop culture memory for but the rest of this episode continues to be buck fucking wild buck fucking wild because not only does tony see angela naked we now have to deal with the fallout of that angela's feeling very violated this man just saw her naked she did it not a single motherfucking thing wrong. She was taking a bath in her bathtub. Tony's not supposed to use that shit. In her bathtub, on her motherfucking time, doing absolutely nothing wrong. And here comes Tony waltzing the motherfuck in. And now she's got to reconcile with the fact that this man that she like didn't even really want up in her house to begin with has now seen her naked in a way that she didn't ask him to. She didn't want him to. And she's feeling very upset and violated about this. But gang... Let's not forget, Tony still has a date to go on tonight. And that date is with Mona's psychology professor. And so as as Angela is dealing with this very emotional situation happening in her home, in walks 
who else but a psychology professor hold on you're skipping you're skipping another as far as i'm concerned like fundamental moment in sitcom history like this is pure sitcom resin right here hit me with it hit me with it when angela um she's like in the argument she's in the heat of the argument she gets she gets a very specific Mm. kind of mad she gets sitcom mad and so she says oh well let's just tell the whole world let's shout it to the universe tony saw angela naked tony saw angela naked and as she's doing this and just getting sitcom mad she like walks over to the door and opens the door i didn't even hear the doorbell ring i don't know why she opened the door i guess so i think she was no the the bit was to scream it to the universe like let's just tell the whole universe tony saw angela naked (laughs) but who's standing there opens the door and there standing is the uh tony's date the psychology professor and she just screams it was in tony it was an insult to injury yeah Tony saw, yeah, she screamed in her face. Tony saw Angela naked. It's a total insult to injury moment. Pure sitcom but, of the <laughs> theatrically screaming something and the turning around and someone's actually there and hears it. Correct. Beautiful, beautiful sitcom moment. And who else could that be but Tony's date who, remember, is Mona's psychology professor. And so as Tony and Angela are in the midst of this situation, in walks the psychology professor. And boy, does this woman make choices. She says, I am clearly coming into people with a very heightened emotional state. I am a clinical psychologist and I could potentially diffuse the situation or I could, you know, have some professional ethics and remove myself from the situation, cancel my date with Tony, ask Tony to leave now. All sorts of decisions I could make. What does this woman do? She says, Mona, my under graduate student who is taking a psychology 101 course recreationally this is your time to shine mama why don't you take this opportunity to direct a psychodrama you're a professor of what i have my phd in clinical psychology she's no dummy Maybe sometime you could stage a little psychodrama and help these two people work through their problems. You are going to love psychodrama. It's like a dinner theater for wackos. Some men just want to watch the world burn. What? Well, here's what a psychodrama is. Zach, tell us what a psychodrama is. Well, uh... She, so she should, the psychology professor suggests this with all the energy of like a stepdad driving with their son on a Saturday being like, hey kid, why don't you grab, grab the wheel for a while? <laughs> Mona, you got this. Do it. She just came, she came through to get Tony salami. She was not trying to practice tonight, but she said, if we must. She, uh, I mean, she just clearly got into the psychology profession because she lives for the drama. And yeah. Oh, yeah. She said, baby, the pot shall be stirred today. And so she's like, hey, uh, why don't you do the psychodrama with your daughter and her employee, uh, Mona? <laughs> <laughs> And because in uh, Who's the Boss, they live in a version of the world where um, not yes anding is punishable by death, (laughs) they instantly are like, okay, we'll do the psychodrama. The psychodrama is where Mona says, okay, we are going to play acts 
you seeing Tony naked, Angela, so that you can sort of get a sort of like psychological unconscious um, um, like uh, you can rich. both find empathy for each other yeah. in the situation. So it's going to help you have empathy for each other. And so they play act it, and then they play act uh, in like pantomime, Angela walking in on Tony, and Tony like, very fun. I like that he, he hides his man titties in the... <laughs> And like the, it was very cute. The pantomime the, the, the pantomime is very sweet. They do a great job. Yeah, yeah, they're yes and each other. Like hell, like they maintain the consistency. Like they're yes anding because like Angela does this thing where like she tosses Tony the key, so he drops his towel, and then she says, "Ha ha, I tricked you." And then Tony, a natural improv artist, is yeah. like he yes ands the dropping of the towel. He's like, "Oh, I guess you did." I like the angel yeah, also I, laughs at people. <laughs> people, the object work. Yep. The object work here. Because if if Angela was not an executive at an advertising agency, she is main stage at Second City next week. Mm -hmm, yep. The object work in this in this psychodrama run by Angela's mother. <laughs> As supervised by her psychology professor. We're talking grade A situation here. And so they they stage this psychodrama where crucially nobody is ever actually seen naked. The only one who has still been seen naked is Angela by Tony. Yeah. And so ultimately the psychodrama fails because of exactly what I just said. Didn't work. Didn't work. Suddenly they're they're not magically healed. Um, and to encourage Mona to keep following her dreams, her passion of psychology, the professor says in front of Angela, again, she is here for the drama. This is why she is not clinically licensed. She is a professor. She does not have to abide by the code of ethics. She looks Angela dead ass in the face and is like, it takes some time with repressed personalities mm. to get through some of this stuff. Don't be discouraged, Mona. When you're dealing with a repressed personality like this, it takes time. Shall we go, Tony? <laughs> repressed personality? Uh, uh, it, it, she was speaking clinically. She knew this was Mona's daughter's house. <laughs> she knew it. She knew she this was Mona's daughter's house. She some free time on a Saturday. <laughs> and she's, yeah, she said, we are about to make life interesting again. And so then they're all like, excuse me? Repressed personality? You gonna come for me like that? You gonna come for me like that in my own home? And then uh, it comes time for, for, for Tony to leave with her. And he says, you know what? Angela's good people. And you can't call her repressed like that. Not in front of me. I don't know what that means, will, but she didn't like it when you said it. I will not be going on a date with you, psychology professor. And so because Tony stood up to her, to the psychology professor, we rectified the sitcom world of who's the boss. And we are able to reset and begin episode three. I. But God damn it, if this isn't the most wild episode of sitcom, this is this is up there with Harry dates a witch levels of ball onkers. It, it is the platonic ideal of a sitcom. It, it is. truly is. 
<laughs> There's also an amazing line, very telling line, uh, where the psychology professor, when Tony steps up to like defend uh, Angela, she says, "Oh, I get it. She's your boss." An extremely boss. reasonable thing to say. And then Tony says, "Yeah." But that ain't the reason. <laughs> She's good people. I'm coming? Nah, maybe you better go by yourself. Oh, I get it. She's your boss. Yeah, she's my boss, but she's also good people. She's good people. Yes, yes, the power structure is there, but if the power structure wasn't there, I'd still side with her. <laughs> <laughs> nuts. It's so nuts. God, let's just, you want to stop and just watch the episode a third time? I, I made, <laughs> let's, let's run it back. as you it's were so like deep in the description, I was like, we probably need to just title this episode, Tony Sees Angela Naked. Yeah, Tony Sees Angela, it's a wild, but okay, we're going to shift tones because I'm going to talk about how this episode is actually so fucked. <laughs> okay. There is the, there is the Jessica part of me. That is so endeared to this episode because it is the platonic ideal of what a sitcom is and should be. But the dynamics at play here are actually, I think, really kind of fucked. And so let me tell you, and again, we're taking a big, big BWO swing here, gang. This is a big BWO swing in terms of what I'm going to lay out for you. I do understand. Let me be clear. This is who's the motherfucking boss that we are talking about. I get it. I get it. Let me take a big swing on gender-based violence for you guys really, really quickly. So here's the thing. Who's the boss, especially in the first couple of episodes, we are clearly rectifying with a disparity in gender power based on sort of this flipped situation where Angela is the one with sort of the economic power in this household. She is the employer. She is the one with the money. Tony's livelihood in housing is sort of contingent um, on Angela. And so we have a very different dynamic than what we expect societally for a man and a woman to have. It is my firm belief that this episode is designed to, quote unquote, bring Angela down a peg and kind of put her and Tony at a more equal level. Here's why I say this. So the first part of the episode, if you guys want to rewind with me a little bit, is Tony being very, very, very uncomfortable about Angela's asks to him to clean her room, to clean her underwear, and to clean the bathroom. The episode ends with Angela actually saying she'll clean her own underwear. And so Zach had a read on this earlier, that this was Tony trying to sort of protect Angela's modesty and not sexualize Angela in that way. I think there's another way to read this. It, my read on it was that it's degrading to have to wash a woman's underwear. It's degrading to have to wash period stains out of a woman's underwear. It is degrading to have to wash her bras. It is degrading to have to do all of these things for a woman in this way that is very intimate and very humiliating. And specifically when you add that gendered component to it, where this is now a man who has to do that for a woman, it becomes a very humiliating and degrading act for Tony. And I think this is partially what that first scene is setting up. Tony is embarrassed to do it. He doesn't want to do this. And so when we think about things like 
the true function of sexual violence. And I'm, I, and I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting Tony purposefully committed an act of sexual violence against Angela. It's very clear that this is a situation. A situation happened that is no one's fault. Besides the mechanism, like the Rube Goldberg machine of sitcomology is at fault here. But bear with me. The function of sexual violence and you know, things like revenge porn, right? It's to reassert power of men over women, right? Men do these things to gain control and to show their power over women. Tony didn't intend to see Angela naked, right? He's not doing it in this purposeful way. Um, and he doesn't have lecherous intentions with it. But the writers of the the show are deploying the exact same tool in order to restore order and restore power, right? Seeing Angela naked is a tool and a trick by the writers to do the exact same thing that a man sort of sharing a naked picture of his ex-girlfriend on the internet would do in the exact same way. And so I, I really do believe here that this, this, the function of this episode is to do exactly that. It is to reduce Angela. It is to reduce her power inside of the home and return her to the sexual object in the way that they restore power. Interesting. Would you say that Angela is the sexual object in general in the in the show? I, I don't think that she is particularly outside of this episode. In this episode, very much so. Yeah, and this what is I'm the second is... episode... This is the second episode of the television show. And what episode did we say is the episode that is remembered? Yeah, of who's this is the, the one people remember. Why? Because this is the episode where literally Angela's body parts are stills that are objectified and could be paused mm -hmm. and reviewed over and over and over again. So again, I am not saying Tony as a character did this, but I am saying the creators of the show did this. So what did they reduce Angela to in the grand memory of the sitcom verse when it comes to who's the boss. I do. Yeah, I think that tracks. Um, they do a lot of interesting things to try because they're always, I think, attempting to meticulously maintain um, a level of equality there. But because this is from a different time, a different era, it's very interesting the math that they choose to do. And I think that you're absolutely right that they tried to put uh, Tony saw Angela naked on the minus column for Angela um, in this like power dynamic. Exactly. So again, I get this is who's the boss. It is. I'm not. It's I'm just a not, TV show. I am not unaware that this is who's the boss, but I don't think I'm wrong. I think it'd be interesting to talk about gender and the nanny really quickly before we yeah. button it up. Yeah. So the nanny, the gender dynamics are fairly interesting. I think there's a lot of different ways that you could really slice it. On the one hand, so there, there's there's blatant gender dynamics at play in terms of like the power Mr. Sheffield has and he wields and he harms Fran, I think in a lot of ways uh, that are very gender specific. But I do also think you could compare Fran to Cece in terms of a gendered lens. Specifically, we did it with a class lens. I think you could do it with a gendered lens as well. But then I also think there's the idea of like Fran in and of herself right? As a, like, like, what is she telling us about women and gender? 
because if you think about it, right, Fran's motivations in a lot of ways are to like get married and to have a husband and to have a family. And she really cares about her appearance. And so on the surface level, perhaps not the most feminist text in that way, but I don't think it's that simple. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's many different ways that we could cut this cake. What's interesting to you? So we were talking about the way that the show uses the juxtaposition of like wasp culture with like this cartoony version of like Queen's Jewish culture to like highlight these two different worlds. And I think that they also symbolically line up these two different worlds with sort of a very masculine world and a very feminine world. When you think about the characters in Fran's world, her family and her friends, it's almost always women. Uh, It's almost exclusively women. Her father is an off-screen character. You don't ever see him. You see him in later seasons. I wish I regret that they ever did it, but the first few seasons he was an off-screen often talked about character. And so he's mostly absent. It's Yetta and it's Fran mother and it's her best friend Bonnie and it's like her sister and very rarely are we seeing someone from Fran's world that is a man it's usually just a very Mm -hmm. generic like Joey Ravioli type character it's a very female dominated world when she visits Val in the bridal boutique it's all pastels and stuff she's going back to her world it's all pastels it's all dresses and uh, when she goes to the other set that is sort of in Fran's world it's her mother's living room where her like father is in some back room but is never seen and barely ever referenced and um, she's in this very like colorful mm-hmm. hyper feminine world yeah the women are loud and powerful mm-hmm. in Fran's world yeah they um, and they're very feminine traditionally feminine in a lot of ways yes meaning that they like to do their hair they like to do their makeup they like to wear very feminine clothing right? They care about getting married, right? They care about dating and sex and men, um, very traditionally feminine in a lot of ways, but again, also wielding the power in in the family and in the scenarios that we see Fran in in her world. Yeah, absolutely. And being juxtaposed to that is Mr. Sheffield's world, the uh, very wealthy upper crust world, which is hyper masculine. Um, mm-hmm. And like Cece is sort of like Fran's yeah. foil in this way. She is often she's masculinized a lot. Yeah, she she is made fun of for specifically because she's like quote a man in a dress or that sort of style of humor Um, right niles will always make fun of her broad shoulders mm -hmm. her big build because she's much taller she's not quite as thin as fran is even though come on she's thin and gorgeous all of you i love cc i love the actress who played her she's so good yeah she's so fucking good it's hard to take a like almost like a straight man character and make them great. They wanted to make Cece just like a guest appearance type thing where she only came on every so often. The actress was so good that they kept her on every episode. Well, mother fucking deserves. She deserves her flowers. I love you, Cece. Justice love for Cece. You. Justice for Cece. But she's often um, she is often talked about as like a, a more masculine character, broad shoulders. She's tall. She's thicker than Fran is. She has a deeper voice. Listen to her. She talks in a deeper voice. Yeah. She's not seen as good with children, good with animals, right? All of these things we would expect women to traditionally be. Cece is not. 
Fran is. Yeah. And so, again, the set of Mr. Sheffield's house, uh, juxtaposed to the Fran's, like, world, her, their sets, it's very white. It's uh, very, a lot of it's very sterile and, like, not a lot of... Um, tchotchkes they talk about in the pilot episode there's just not as much clutter or like color to it it's a very masculine world and so i think that's interesting that they symbolically line up class and gender in this way mm-hmm. where Fran's world is characterized as being lower class but it's also characterized as being hyper feminine and they merge those two ideas again and again and so you have sort of like a text that is both feminist but it is also very class conscious we are introduced to the character Fran that she loses her job because she has a falling out with her boyfriend and uh, she is put in the in a precarious economic position because her boyfriend who owns the dress shop kicks her out because he has another girlfriend and so she goes out and she's selling makeup and then she gets this other job and she believes that the best way that she can like make it is to get Mr. Sheffield like she mm-hmm. wants to marry Mr. Sheffield before um before she ever like falls in love with Mr. Sheffield. Yeah, it has nothing to do who he with who he is. It's all about the status of what he represents and what's expected of her in a lot of ways, what's prized for her and her family uh, where she's coming from is like the only shot that we have to make it is to marry into it is the messaging there. Um, and I think I definitely do think that that's an, an interesting thing. And like Fran uses her sexuality as a tool in this mission because it's the strongest card that she has. And it's, it's interesting because she often is very much vilified for doing exactly that. Yeah. So when you normally talk about that exact dynamic that uh, I'm describing, where you're a quote gold digger, it's you're the villain, right? And there are tons of tropes about this, right? Of like totally um, Joan Cusack's character from Adam's Family Values. What a choice! Yeah. What a choice of an example of where you know she serially marries wealthy men. She is a gold digger, and then she kills them, and she moves on. And um, in laws, um, yes, that, that kind Go of ahead. gold. Digger and so it's a very fun premise that essentially what they do in the nanny is they flip that idea on its head and they put all the sympathy on the underdog of nanny trying to gold dick like as the audience you're like girl dig that gold (laughs) dig that gold honey you want yeah you're mad at you're mad at mr sheffield because he repeatedly shuts it down Yeah. yeah you're absolutely right that it is an interesting trick that the the creators of the nanny played uh, to subvert that trope. And I think actually potentially turn that into a feminist text. And it's interesting too, because what does ultimately unite CC and Fran from these two different, very different worlds, what unites them um, as women together is both of them feeling the pressure to get married and both of them feeling essentially the pressure to get Mr. Sheffield to notice them. When this motherfucker basically barely notices either of them. They could be like on fire in front of him. And I don't believe this motherfucker would throw a glass of water on either of them unless Fran's titties were out. Yeah, I think Mr. Sheffield might be like asexual or something. He's just... 
Mr. Sheffield's ace. It's canon. Uh, <laughs> ace are like deeply, like sociopathically narcissistic. Like it literally takes an airplane about to crash before he like is able to evoke any passion in this man. <laughs> and he's like, I'm just going to say I love you. <laughs> and then take it back immediately after. Literally, yes, yeah. So I do, yeah, I do think it's interesting that that, that is what unites them as women is ultimately like they both understand that like the obligation that they have and for very different reasons and for very different motivations, but the obligation that they feel is to like marry Mr. Sheffield. Yeah. I love the idea that the nanny is like subverting this idea of like, you know, it's supposed to be like regressive to show characters that are out to like advance by romantically engaging with men. Uh, that's supposed to be like a bad, bad feminist thing to do and don't do it. But I, I love the idea that the nanny is doing something interesting with this. Um, yeah. Because when Fran is like in this wealthy people world, she is in the back of her head, she is always thinking about the dollars and cents in some sense. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. um, yep. I love the way, I thought it was very sweet and it just says a lot about Fran's character in this one episode where she is like many years into her profession and like her, her stay there as the nanny. And um, she's still trying to hustle up some business for her sister's catering business. Yes. Yes. She's still like at the drop of a hat. She mentioned her sister's craving for this all the fucking time. She is about the dollars and cents. So she's about it. So, she's about it. And she's about lifting other women up, not UCC, but lifting other women up. Yeah. When they do a remodel of uh, the kitchen and like Fran's put in charge, her mother got that furniture, honey. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yes. Fran, Fran is a class warrior. Like, <laughs> she yeah and i think it's like fran knows fran knows that all of the men who are around her see her as a sexual object and she plays into that she does her hair she does her makeup she likes looking really good but she also does that because she knows it's a fucking weapon and it's the best one she's got because she has got a game she is playing to get the bag and to get comfort and security for her family. And so if that means she is sitting on Mr. Sheffield's desk with those legs crossed and those titties out, you better believe she's doing it. Good for motherfucking her. The nanny is, it just does not get enough recognition for what it was doing for like. Because uh, I think it's it's easy on the surface level to say the things I said, right? Yeah. When I was saying like, I think it's more complicated than that up top is like what you see is a, uh, a woman that you could easily read on the surface is very vapid and vain and silly and stupid who only cares about her looks and marrying a rich man. Mm -hmm. But as I said up top, it's so much more complicated than that. And it's exactly what you laid out for us. That they're like, if you look at it through a class lens and you look at it through a gendered lens, you suddenly have a very different per version of Fran who is a smart woman who is counting the dollars and cents and is playing the best card that she has out of the deck that she's been dealt. Yeah. Legally Blonde gets a lot of credit for being like this iconic movie that sort of pushed against the very 
mediocre kind of feminism <laughs> that is like putting down girly aesthetics for um, being like unserious and stuff. And like, you know, you can be strong and powerful without giving up pink. You know, that sort of thing. It's more complicated than that. I love Legally Blonde. But the nanny was all about that, was all about exploring the power of these things like clothing, makeup, flirtation. These were things with like an ancient history of a gender developing ways to use power, of the power that they had and and like celebrating it. And... So, and and they're constantly like nipping at this um, kind of like belittling of that. Of like, there's this, I love this episode. It has Jason Alexander in it. And so Fran is starting to feel self-conscious at the idea that the only reason that Mr. Sheffield is interested in her is that he's only interested in her looks and not her brain. And you know, this classic, like he's only interested because you're pretty. And and Cece's trying to like put her down for that. Oh, come on, you must know the only reason you got this job is because of your looks. Hey, hey, that is not true. I got this job because I lied on my resume. (laughs) Men of Maxwell's class enjoy keeping women like you around to flirt with. You know, you're right. Now, that's bad because... (laughs) He doesn't respect you. Don't you know why you get away with murder? It's because of those skimpy little outfits you bounce around in. It's offensive. And so this gets in Fran's head a little bit, and she's, like, really thinking about it and feeling uncomfortable. And then they do this trope that is done all over the place where she meets a blind man. And she gets very interested in dating this blind man because she feels as though it's going to prove to her that, um, you know, someone can like her for her personality. Yeah. And so she's getting along with Jason Alexander and she keeps talking about Mr. Sheffield because, again, she... She wants to be with Mr. Sheffield. She is not right. interested in this man for the right reasons. And then right. she, as she's on the stake, keeps talking with um, Mr. Sheffield, the blind guy, um, says, oh, you're one of these women. And uh, she says, what kind of women? No, it's, it's the kind of woman that only sees me for being blind and wants to prove something to themselves. And so they're like using my body. <laughs> like literally yeah, flipping the Yeah, they totally script. invert the trope on See, I'm glad I met you. I mean, it's so nice to meet a guy that appreciates you for your inner self and not just for the way you look. A 90s Dracula Smith. Well, it really doesn't matter to me. You know, Mr. Sheffield just thinks of me as an object. I know. He's only attracted to you because of how you look, and it really bugs you. You know, I think you're just going out with a guy who can't see because you think you have something to prove. That's not true. Yes, it is. You're so hung up on this guy. You you mentioned his name 35 times in the last hour. Well, it's just that me and Mr. Sheffield... 36! (laughs) No, I really think that uh, you should try and convince him that you're more than just a 90s Kate Smith. (laughs) You know, I think that you should know someone a little better before you start pegging them with such deadly accuracy. (laughs) 
Jack. I'm so sorry. I really am using you. Yes. I thought that was so smart and such an interesting way of like flipping this kind of like belittling of anytime a woman is like also attractive and is like uh, mm -hmm. advanced in their field. They, there's always like this easy shot that you can make at them that like it's because you're pretty. Yeah. Um, and this is just, just such a fun way of playing with that idea and also poking fun at the kind of fucked up way that shows yeah. tend to use blind people. <laughs> I love The Nanny. It's an excellent show for exactly that reason. I don't want to overstate that it doesn't, like it, it does with all things, especially with properties that age have its problems. Like I think there's a ton going on with like weight and fat shaming mm. that happens all over The Nanny. They regularly tell you like brands of fat slob. Um, in the way that she eats, that she's destined to be her mother. They regularly put down CC for her body, even though, again, as we stated, she's gorgeous. And we kind of skated past it, but I didn't do my disclaimer for it. A lot of the CC jokes are very transphobic. A lot of that's coming from Niles. I do think that, like, there's a lot with gender in Niles, right? Yeah. In terms of, like, He's often coded as very feminine. He's doing the cooking and the cleaning, and he's not doing it in the Tony Danza, who's the boss way, where he's turning it into workout. He's just doing it, right? But they constantly give Niles opportunities to be like, oh, I'm not gay. I am not gay. Yeah. Um, and it's just a show didn't have the balls to go for it, I think is the only thing that we can offer here. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's just... He's clearly gay coded. Did I tell you about the unlicensed nanny sequel that I produced? I, which is a very fancy. Sorry? This is a very fanciful way of saying that, you know me, I'm always on the hunt for a good deal on cameo.com. And I was about to say, I know that you got a cameo yeah. from Niles. Yeah, for my sister's birthday, I found out that uh, the actor for, I, I hope this is throws him some business. Um, but I think that hit him on cameo gang yeah, the actor for Niles was going for like 40 bucks uh, around my sister's birthday. And it's like, fuck yeah, that's a steal. It was either that or like 80 bucks for Mr. Feeney. So, um, CC was like, we're going to take the discount. CC was going for like a full hundred, which I'm sorry, honey. That's not, it's <laughs> too much baby girl, but that's too much. Although listeners out there, hmm. If you want to, if you're <laughs> instead of just donating to a non existent Patreon, if you'd like to buy us a cameo from CC, oh, with the nanny, yeah. that's what we'll do. All our Patreon, I, I think it's in the license, we can't put it on our podcast, but we will privately enjoy it. <laughs> we will, in we will shout you out. Well, I'll do a, I'll do a personal reenactment yep. of anything she says in the cameo. If anyone wants to buy us a cameo from Rogue CC from the nanny, that goes for any cameo you ever want to buy us. Zach and I will do a dramatic reenactment with a full impression of whoever the fuck you bought us a cameo of. That's a be well guarantee. <laughs> Put it on the box. That's a be well guarantee. <laughs> um, but so I got a cameo from Niles. I did not ask him to do Niles the character. Um, I didn't ask. He knows what people want. I wanted him to just s s wish my sister uh, a happy birthday, but he threw his full ass into it, folks. He 
gave me lore. He gave me um, uh, a, a lot of. I think he gave me a lot of like ripped off old Phyllis Diller bits. If I'm being honest, but um, you know, whatever. It's forty bucks. <laughs> um, he, so basically, he introduced himself as Niles, and he was like, "Well, let me. Uh, I, I understand that you are um, a fan of the show, and so let me tell you how things have been with my mar- marriage with Cece uh, for the for the last forty years." <laughs> <laughs> and um so he just did a bunch of like take my wife bits like old stand-up take my wife bits <laughs> like uh, oh her upper arm fat has its own zip code and that kind of thing and um it, it went on for like longer than it had to be like to almost twice as long as like the time estimate so i don't know if he's still doing that i can't promise he'll get the same results but right now uh niles on cameo great deal great deal i would love again somebody please buy us what what's the actress's name let's get real specific here somebody please buy us a lauren lane cameo why so that we can confirm if they've made an offline deal where both of them are only doing in character riffs against each other yeah just um (laughs) as niles and cc please god I'm not going to spend $100, but babies, if you love us. You know, we don't have a Patreon, but maybe maybe this is what we'll do. We'll just, instead of having a Patreon, we'll just, like, <laughs> demand from our audience. We're not going to put it on another episode until somebody buys <laughs> until us. Until somebody buys us a Lauren Lane cameo. God damn it. Next week, it's going to be like, I want a Roseanne Afghan. <laughs> Buy it. <laughs> Here's the Etsy link. <laughs> I'll see you when someone buys it. <laughs> Much exactly. easier than setting wow. up a Patreon. Let me tell you. <laughs> there you have it. Now you guys know our demands. <laughs> um, we are paid only in cameos. Well, I think we did it, Zach. I think we did it. I think we talked about who's the boss and the nanny. Who's the boss? A sitcom, sitcom. Um, it, it was a treat to dive into it. The nanny is always a pleasure to revisit. And there you go. I'm glad you enjoyed the breakneck pace at which we went from talking about the most bonkers episode of Who's the Boss to me calling it equivalent to revenge <laughs> Like rape <porn>. culture. <laughs> yeah. Glad you guys enjoyed that. But there we go. That's what you come to us for. Don't forget to like and share and subscribe comment on if you're on spotify um zach loves the spotify comments keep hitting them i do my random uh, poll questions um also and we're going to reiterate because this is actually our favorite way for you to engage is find a random tiktok that's just not doing that well and doesn't have a lot of comments and just say whatever shit you want to say there uh, we, we will find it. it, and it tickles us every time that someone follows those instructions. So it's wild to me. It is, it is wild to me that we said to do that, and then you guys started doing it, and it warms my heart because every time. On. So because keep, it was, keep it up. That's it. it. Bye now. Because it was all. Because it was all. Because it was Because it was on, because it was on, rate, review, and subscribe to, because it was on.